0: everybody. Welcome to the ProGov Podcast, a monthly podcast exploring policies and tools for progressive local governance with leaders from policy research institutes around the U.S. The ProGov Podcast is brought to you by progov21.org, a free resource and public good for local legislators, policymakers, and advocates. Prog of 21 is a fully searchable digital archive of thousands of progressive local and state policies and tools for their effective use. I'm your host, Ada Inman, and today we are joined by former Seattle City Councilmember Nick Licata for an exciting discussion around campaign finance and democracy vouchers. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Nick, as a former Seattle City Council member, activist, and author, you have lots of experience working with local progressive policy. Can you tell me a little bit about your career trajectory and how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure. I became politically conscious in college, actually. I didn't even expect to go to college because we didn't have much money and my grades were average, but I did get in. And when I was there, I was so excited and I expected everything to be marvelous. And it turns out that I discovered that there were things going on that surprised me. I mean, like, for instance, the neighborhood I grew up in was somewhat integrated, even though there were boundaries. There were very few blacks, mean 1% out of 10,000 students were black at a public university. And then a lot of things were going on. The fraternities, you had to have money to join the fraternities. And the fraternities basically were the kids that got to run everything. And I realized that I was living in a system that I didn't have any input over, any control over. And I thought that was like what my parents were like, because neither of them graduated from high school. So I guess my political orientation came from the feeling that I should have some control over my life. And that I brought that with me as I was growing up and becoming an adult. And when I moved to Seattle, I I became involved in some grassroots activities, such as uh, forcing banks to reinvest in neighborhoods where they used to have branch libraries, that type of thing. Uh, Got involved in trying to stop nuclear arms testing, which was going on in the country at that time. So these are issues that in some ways still are around. And then I decided to run for city council because I was doing all that work all the time. And I thought, well, I wanted to participate in the public decisions that were affecting my life and other people's life. And before I actually ran for the council, because I was involved in those sort of like public controversial issues, along with a handful of other people led an effort to stop public funding of these very expensive sports stadiums, first the baseball and then the football. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds going into these developments, which a large portion of the population was very supportive of of the team, the home team. But it was the owners of the teams that were making all the money. And they had the choice to find funding outside public funds, but they came to the public because that's where the cheaper dollars were. You know, they didn't need free dollars. And when I ran for city council, I ran actually on the belief that governance should be responsible to everyone, not just some people. And even though I was called a radical, I often actually had a lot of support from what we now consider to be conservative, libertarian type people, because my message resonated with them, which is that you want a a government that's accountable, that spends our money wisely. And it was giving money away to corporations. And a lot of people did not like that. So strangely enough, I won the election, even though the mayor and all the council members, but one supported my opponent and then major newspapers supported my opponent. And when I got into office, I thought I would only be there for one term and I ended up being there for five terms. But I think one of the reasons I stayed in was because I was always in contact with people. And even when I would choose, like one of the first things I worked on was getting the city to formally condemn, at that time, was Burma becoming to Myanmar because they were basically torturing innocent people. And that's not what a city council generally does. And so some of the council members, well, close to half, but I actually got the resolution passed, to condemn it and to say we, we would not do contract work with anyone from that country. So I was always looking at not just what the city politics were, but I was also looking at the broader picture of how other people could be impacted. So that's how I got involved. And that's what I was doing on, on the council.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Nick, for providing that background. And I want to transition more to the topic of this episode, which is sure. campaign finance. Yes. So to start off, what's wrong with campaign finance in its current state?
1: Well, the current state, the way campaigns are financed now, is it's always been this way. It's the people with the most money. And then due to Supreme Court rulings, it's not just individuals with money, but now it's corporations with money. Corporations can collect more dollars and spend more dollars. And the whole idea of having uh, publicly financed campaigns, or at least publicly assisted financing of campaigns, was to act as a counterbalance to all the private funds that was coming in. And the primary goal was to allow people who did not have much money, but may have good ideas, and they have strong support in the community, a poor community, perhaps, a chance to get their their message out. It doesn't guarantee they're going to win at all. And it's up to them to be a good candidate. It's up to them to get the word out, but it will give them an opportunity to have greater exposure to the public of their ideas and their message. So that's what was wrong with financing campaigns is that it's People with the money make, unfortunately, the greatest influence on who gets elected. And then the reason that I, I supported public assistance financing of campaigns is that it allowed more candidates to participate in and give people more choices.
0: So what are alternative models of campaign finance that would fix those problems and strengthen our democracy?
1: Sure. Well, let me first begin by saying that we have to have proper expectations of what public finance can can accomplish. You know, structurally there's going to still be what they call independent expenditures, which means that private group gets formed, often dominated by corporations or or deep pocket millionaires or whatever, plus billionaires, but not in city politics. And they have no limits. They do not represent a candidate. And technically, they're not supposed to communicate with the candidate, but in fact, they're used to run attack ads against someone who is, doesn't have their support. And so public financing tries to counteract that, but they grow. The second is that it's the expectation is that if we use public financing we'll get better candidates. And we generally have a greater choice, but we don't really know who's going to win. And one of the things that Seattle did that was different than most public financing, most public financing works by, you say, uh, the first $25 you collect from individuals, the city will match it, okay, dollar for dollar for the first $25. And then they also say that if you sign this agreement, that you say that you want to participate in public financing, that you will not spend more than a threshold amount. And if you do exceed that threshold, then often the laws will say, then you're allowed to raise more. But at least we know that you got started on the right track by being able to raise some money. But the Supreme Court came along and and has knocked that idea down. They say that you cannot now limit how much someone can spend on a campaign, even if they signed a, a contract or agreed that they were getting public financing. So that is one of the problems now with the current model of public financing, that you have to set a limit on someone who's participating. Otherwise, you're opening the door for more money. And that ruling is dramatically going to affect public financing throughout the country. More lawsuits will be brought up, but there's a path there now for, I would say, crippling good public financing. Now, Seattle came along with this thing about democracy campaign vouchers which was the first in the country. And a couple other cities now have looked at it. I think Philadelphia is one of them and a couple others. And the way that works is that it's somewhat like play money. Each resident in Seattle is entitled to getting four $25 vouchers. Okay. Those vouchers are worth $25. And what they do is they give that voucher to a candidate. This only works for candidates, it doesn't work for initiatives or referendums or policy issues that are on the ballot. And you can give it to four different candidates, or you can give it all to one candidate. Okay. And if you don't use it, it's not spent. So the idea was that more people would be involved in the campaign process. And it turned out that there was a, a, a significant increase in people who were involved in campaigns before it was like, I think, Something like 2% and went up to like 9%. So it was a significant increase of people who were actually contributing to a campaign. And also had the impact, and this is what public finance in general does, but democracy vouchers, I think, have helped it even more, is that it turns out that the type of candidate that generally does not run is not just personally being not wealthy, let's say, but also the expectation that they will not be able to raise money. And that turns out to be mostly women. Women. For a long period of time, we're talking locally and nationally, did not run for office because their network isn't based on. Well, quite honestly, in that case, it's more women as opposed to men, and therefore most of the men were raising more of the money than the women. So therefore, men had greater advantage of running for office because they could raise more money than women. But with pilot public financing, more women stepped up to run for office, which is an interesting. No one had expected that. So the vouchers then have resulted in more candidates running, without any doubt, more people step forward, and more people getting engaged in the electoral process by making contributions.
0: Great, thank you. And those are some really amazing strengths of the Democracy Voucher Program that we've seen. And since you touched on that, I'm also curious on the flip side, what are some flaws that you've seen and how, how can we work to fix them?
1: Well, the biggest problem, fortunately, is, as I mentioned before, is these Independent expenditure campaigns, political action committees, that is what they're called. And what we've seen is that the dramatic increase in what IE, independent expenditures, in IE spending. In the past, they only accounted for, depending how far back you go. I mean, you go back 30 years, they almost didn't exist locally. And then they started increasing. And then when the Supreme Court decided that corporations were people and they could make contributions, the floodgates got opened. And now, In Seattle, and I'm sure it's true in in other places, the kind of expansion we've seen is, you know, close to five, six, seven times the amount of money that has been contributed from IEs. And now it's typical that IEs will, for one particular campaign, any particular campaign, they will be spending more money than the actual candidate will be spending. The candidates out there raising money all the time, but the IEs, because they have deep pockets and often no one knows where the money's coming from most of the money is coming from, they can raise phenomenal amount of money. So once again, the table has been tilted in the favor of, of wealth. Now, what can happen to that? We, you know, what we do want to do is elect people to office that aren't beholden to deep pockets or the wealthiest the best thing to do, quite honestly, is organize. You have to organize door to door. You have to organize communities. You have to get people out to vote. Candidates need to go to community meetings, take unpopular stance that you'll find can be popular. Like the, Again, what I did was opposing funding of very popular teams. Uh, baseball teams are popular and, and the basketball team was. But what you realize is that the majority of people, even though they support a sports team, they're also concerned about, where their tax dollars are going. So they'll say, look, I'm in favor of sports, but I don't think I need to, I mean, the tickets are expensive anyhow. Why am I also spending tax dollars giving the owners money? So you take unpopular and they have to learn how to explain it to people. I mean, I think that's perhaps the biggest drawback. And what we really need to do is is figure out a way, it'd be great to have a public education campaign to say that this is where people are getting their money and this is what I stand for. King County, which is where Seattle is located, is somewhat unique. They actually publish a printed version of a a voter's brochure. Not many municipalities do that. And that means that everyone has at least one channel that puts everyone on the same footing. Everyone gets the same amount of space and everyone is listed in the the brochure and uh, anyone who's running for office. And so a lot of people use it locally. And it's also, it's on the internet, but also having it in a, a paper form, a tactile form, people actually read it. And that helps level the, the playing field. So besides public financing, they can do public education. Now, our city has a, a TV station, many larger cities have TV stations, but they could also probably use money to do public announcements also, introduce the candidates on a uh, on a forum where then everyone would be exposed to them. So you can use public financing, I believe, public supporting of electoral processes to create a more level playing field. Some countries, I know Brazil is one and a couple others, have it whereby the national elections, they actually buy newspaper space and then just distribute it to all the candidates. So there's ways that we can do to get the voter better educated as to where the money's coming from to the candidates and also what the positions are of the candidates.
0: So- We touched on a lot there, right? We talked about some weaknesses of the Democracy Voucher Program, but we also talked about how people can encourage officials to run for office that aren't necessarily controlled by big money. And I want to go back quick to our conversation about the flaws of the Democracy Voucher Program. We spoke briefly about the increase in independent expenditure seen, but we've also seen voucher harvesting happening. So I wonder if you can talk briefly about that and really talk about if we or should we restrict voucher harvesting facilitated by private firms.
1: Ballot harvesting is where the candidate signs a contract with a third party and business that will go out and solicit people to turn their vouchers in. And what they were doing was standing outside of uh, grocery stores, they'd ask someone, and they would say, well, I don't have my voucher, but if I did, I would give it to so-and-so. So So what they do is that the harvesting, there's a thing called a substitute voucher. So if someone doesn't use it, they can use this. So they would identify these people, they would give the vouchers to those folks, and then the folks would just hand it back to the person and say, yeah, this guy sounds good. I'll sign it over my four vouchers to this person. So that's the kind of harvesting it goes And it's an idea that was actually borrowed in our state and other states, too, from what was called uh, harvesting signatures on initiatives, statewide initiatives or statewide uh, referendums. There's about 20 states that do have initiatives and referendums so that some people set up businesses that will pay someone a certain amount per signature that they gather going door to door or standing outside grocery stores or wherever. So they'll say, look, I'll give you $2 a signature. You collect 100 signatures, you get $200, okay? And that's how the initiatives are working. So initiatives are initially decided uh, in referendums where you're using volunteers to go out and collect signatures. No one ever thought that you could pay someone to collect signatures. It wasn't against the law. And then they made a law against it. And then again, you go to the court system and the court systems overruled it. They said, no, that's a violation of free speech. And again, the definition of free speech has been corrupted to include a lot of corporate practices that are not individuals, that now there is an industry in our state, and I suspect most states that have initiatives referendums, to collect signatures. So the voucher program basically piggybacking on that sort of corruption. I don't believe there's been any attempt to pass a law stopping it because I imagine that the attorneys have looked at what was already approved for the collecting of signatures, the paying and collecting signatures. So they're probably trying to figure out if there's a way to craft something that would allow that practice to be stopped. But right now, I would say we're in a, a gray area that is tilted towards allowing that practice to continue. And the only way that you could stop it is if you design something that attaches some punishment to it or just outlaws it. The outlaw doesn't look like it's going to work because of the court rulings. And the punishment is not clear how that's going to happen either. So that is one of the, again, unexpected consequences so far of democracy vouchers. Doesn't mean that there can't be a solution. People are just working on a solution on how to stop it.
0: Why do some politicians choose to opt out of democracy vouchers? For example, Shama Sawant decided to opt out of the program, calling it, quote, a progressive step forward, but unfortunately not designed for a race. Where the whole big business establishment is united against us, it does not prevent corporate PACs from overnight dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars into the race to try to buy the election, end quote. Does this point to strengths or weaknesses of the project?
1: Well, she's accurate in saying that that's why it has drawbacks. Voucher systems or even public financing has drawbacks. There's no doubt about that. I would part ways with her in that even though that is true, if you combine some public financing or democracy vouchers, you still get more candidates, you still get more people engaged. So I think you're not going to stop corporations from plowing money in. That'll happen no matter what even if you don't have the public financing. So the Public Financing acts as a very small leverage against it. The reason Chama didn't though is because she has unique position when she was elected as an outright socialist, not just a social Democrat, but an outright socialist or Marxist socialist to be exact. I think she was the only one in the country to be elected to a, a major city as a, as a council member, and it did get national attention. And I think she still gets national attention. I think just one other person, maybe in Minneapolis, was running and may have gotten in, and maybe another Buffalo or some other minor cities. But it, again, it's, it's unique. In Europe, it's not that unique, but in the United States, it totally is. So she has a national audience. And Therefore, if you are using the voucher system, it presents this false image that she's collecting a lot of money locally, where she actually needs to collect a lot of money nationally. So there would be appearance of conflict. I don't think there would be, but the the appearance of it. So I think she just didn't want to appear to be dipping in and also getting money out of state. People can still collect money out of states. I mean she's not the only one. Other people do as well. But hers is unique in that she does collect from small donors, obviously not corporations, from around the country. And she's been able to match the local corporate money dollar for dollar, basically. So you know they attack her strongly, but an interesting thing that doesn't get talked about much is she doesn't use her money like most politicians do which I didn't, I followed the system before she actually joined the office, which is that I ran for office, was that you work through organizing, getting volunteers. So I always hired people to help organize. And that's what she uses her money for. She hires people to help organize. So she's building an organization as opposed to mailing out flyers, more and more flyers or TV or radio ads, which is not as effective. And also the people that she hired and I used to hire believe in the candidates. So they're they're enthused and they can explain issues. So that's a very powerful tool, which I would hope that more candidates would do.
0: So I know we touched on this briefly before, but besides democracy vouchers, are there any other steps that local governments can take to fight big money in elections?
1: Well, you know, ideally it would be a system that says that corporate money cannot be spent on campaigns. Again, you end up with the Supreme a very conservative corporate-dominated court, which is setting the, the trend that stops those laws from taking effect. Then you got an approach of trying to use public opinion. And so going back to what I said earlier, you can use public agencies, city government, county government, state, to try to level the playing field by getting out to the general public, just solid information about what the candidates are running, as opposed to getting into a culture war uh, and name calling. And I think in that capacity is something that has not been pursued strong enough by most local governments. So it won't get big money out of politics, short of overturning court rulings and passing laws that would stand up in the courts, which is, again, still a path that could happen. But the other path is to, rather than deny corporate funding, is to stymie it by allowing, I would say, a level-headed, a fair distribution of what campaigns are about. And what you're doing there, there then, is you're asking people to look at a source of information that they can trust as being fair. And I think that would have, at this point in time, our best chance of getting better candidates elected.
0: Thank you. My last question for you. What coalitions and alliances do we need to recruit to make this outsider model of politics sustainable for elected officials, activists who want to support them, and their communities?
1: The, the simple answer is grassroots organizations, and that that means. And there are many out there. There are many grassroots organizations that are nonprofit, so they feel that they can't get involved in campaigns. But as individuals, they can. And so, what can happen is, I believe, is uh, and it's up to candidates and, of course, uh, political parties to spend time organizing, working with organizers from various groups. And I say nonprofits because generally those are the groups that are not dominated by by corporate entities. And when you work with them, the key is once you get into office is to continue working with them. And that's the strength of, of having, I think, a progressive candidate in office, because then they really have a strong grassroots organization of multiple organizations that are working with each other. It's you don't, this is a mistake that I think voters make too. They think if you elect someone who's well-meaning, who's got good ideas, who has great principles into office, the, you won the battle. No. You, you basically have your foot in the door. But to go through that door, you need to work with that person all the time. And the person in office also needs to work with folks outside who got them into office. So it is, it sounds like work, a constant struggle, but I think of it as a, a constant path <laughs> that you have to keep on. Uh, it's a good path. It may be challenging, but many hikes are, and you enjoy the view once you get there, right? And so I think that by going down that route, of working consciously to do networking and working with groups and then maintain that network are the people who actually remain in office, but also get things accomplished. Just to end with one little scenario, uh, I was in office and, you know, my fourth and fifth term, and uh, I was approached by people who were in unions. When the Unions are organized, probably the best of, of the groups that I'm referring to, but they said, why don't we pass paid sick leave? Because we have a lot of people that we represent grocery stores and restaurants and are going to work sick. They need to stay home. We're getting other people sick and they need to take care of their sick children. And we want the city to pass a law to do that. And I said, yeah, it's great, but I don't think we can. This is the strength of having, working with organizations. They said, yeah, we looked at the city charter. turns out you have police powers which cover health and we can design something that will basically say that Not just city employees, but any employee in the city should have paid sick leave. And I said, oh my gosh, I've been here for what, four terms? And I just never rethought of that. So you always have to be open to new ideas and looking at things differently. That's the strength of organizing. It's not just winning a single battle. It's like learning at problems that have been around for a long time in a different way and looking at tools that have been in the shed and haven't been used.
0: Great. Thank you, Nick. Was there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to talk about? No, I
1: I think the only thing to talk about, I mean, to add to it is that so much of the news you read, unfortunately, it's often nationally, but locally as well. It seems like the odds are against getting laws passed, which really help the people who need help the most. And I think that if you look over time, progress has been made. It may not come this year. May not even come next year, but it will come. And it only comes after you continue to keep at it and enjoy your work and enjoy the process. If you go in with a martyr attitude, it's not going to make other people feel like they're on a path to success. There's a lot to be said about enjoying the dance of politics in that you savor every victory you get and you celebrate it and don't focus on the losses that you have.
0: That was Nick Licata. Nick Licata is a retired member of the Seattle City Council, having left office at the end of 2015 after being elected to five terms and serving 18 years. During his time on the council, he served as council president and chaired numerous committees, including budget, parks, public safety, human services, housing, arts, and culture. In 2012, Nick was named by the nation as Progressive Municipal Official of the Year and twice named Best Local Politician by the Seattle Weekly. He was an acknowledged leader in passing paid sick and safe leave, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and legalizing marijuana. Nick initiated the founding of Local Progress, the National Municipal Policy Network, and served as its first chairman. In 2003, Lakata authored the children's novel Princess Bianca and the Vandals. Read more about Nick and his work at becomingacitizenactivist.org. Nick, thank you for your work and contributions to the ProGov podcast. And as always, thank you to the Free Music Archive for providing our soundtrack. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ada Inman, and this is the ProGov Podcast. We'll be back in July with a new episode discussing progressive local policy around childcare employment, featuring the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment. To keep up to date with ProGov21 in the meantime, you can follow us at ProGov21 on Twitter, sign up to receive our newsletter, and check out our constantly expanding, fully searchable online library of progressive policy resources at progov21.org.